No, I'm choosing to refrain from that choice to be a sociopath. Then I can claim adulthood. I can claim to be a functional part of a society. That was the error, and that's how far we have to go back, and that's how we have to reframe our language patterns. Because as we use these other words, you know, these other generalities, these um, uh, nominalizations, um, for those who don't, aren't familiar with that term, where we take a, a, an action and give it the name of a noun, you know, like, like socialism. Socialism is to be social. We turn it into a noun as, a, as an idea instead of a behavioral concrete set of actions. We, we use the word socialism and we turn it into an idea. Okay, but what does that mean? We talk about socialism. We, what we don't talk about is sociopathy versus healthy and holistic. And that's where we need to begin. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Mark Collins. Mark is a fourth-year MMT activist, Arkansas resident, and self-described far-to-the-left socialist. In the late 1970s, Mark's wife's sister was diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. This was a shock, since no one in the family had the disease in the previous two generations. It soon became clear that his twin boys, age seven at the time, would likely suffer the same fate it meant that they would probably not live past the age of 45, which indeed became a reality. Mark describes how he prepared his little boys and all his children, in addition to himself, for this inevitability. I see Mark's tragedy as analogous to our current situation with climate change. On our current path, I'm having a hard time seeing how societal collapse is not going to happen, and relatively soon. Unlike Mark's boys, however, we have a chance to change that path. But unless and until we come to terms with the inevitability of our current path, our chances of changing it are small and growing smaller. The catalyst, however, for my asking Mark to do an interview was related to a post I wrote on Facebook describing how the United States, as the only issuer of the United States dollar, does not ever need to borrow the United States dollar from anyone or anything else, including China. Why would it need to borrow what it, and only it, can create? 
After receiving feedback from Mark and others, in addition to my previous discussions with Joe Firestone, I now realize what the United States does is not borrow at all, despite the term being omnipresent in the language of our political, media, and educational institutions. You and I put our money into a bank account because the bank guarantees that it will keep your money secure and, in addition, pay a little interest. United States bonds are the same thing. Purchasing a bond is opening a savings account at the U.S. Treasury. The Treasury, and more broadly the government, guarantees that it will keep our money secure and, in addition, pay a little interest. The United States doesn't need our money before it can spend new money any more than the local bank branch needs our money to create new loans. Banks make money by earning interest on loans in addition to fees, fines, and fraud. But the loans are created by using their computers to mark up the size of the account of the loan recipient. The bank securing our money is a service provided by the bank to its customers. Likewise, United States bonds are a service provided by the central government to its citizens and other countries, not the other way around. The government selling bonds is not borrowing, it's securitization. However, pretending the government must borrow its own money from its citizens is a very effective method of scaring those citizens into thinking that anything ambitious they want or need the government to do must necessarily place a massive burden directly onto our individual shoulders. The truth, however, is whatever the federal government does is a burden on the entirety of society. In other words, us as a whole, as a collective. Our capabilities as a collective are immense because the resources and labor available to us as a collective is just as immense. Mark is a storyteller. As I think back on our conversation, the words that keep coming back to me are philosophical and spiritual. This is part one of a two-part episode. Enjoy. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, in addition to exclusive content and updates, you will hear episodes days before the public. For $5 a month, you will hear episodes weeks and sometimes even months in advance. Please start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. Actually, I need to be clear. 
I'm an active participant in the Facebook group Modern Monetary Theory for Real Progressives, which I highly recommend, but I haven't been a formal member of Real Progressives since 2018. Okay, thanks. Hello, Mark Collins. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and uh, talking with me. It's really nice to... Yes, yes, uh, thank you. Um, and I have very much enjoyed uh, what you've been doing as far as interviewing, getting the word out of, uh, about MMT, basically, you know, sort of making, giving, giving voice to what this new economic perspective is all about. I, I very much appreciate you and and the other people that have been associated with uh, Real Progressives. Uh, it's, it's been enlightening and entertaining and informative. Well, that's great. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I, we, I've seen you online quite a bit, but um, just about a month ago, or a few weeks ago, you really sort of enlightened me with some stuff, which we'll get into later, uh, regarding borrowing. But... Uh, uh, how is uh how has your life been uh in this new coronavirus reality? Well, um, um, my lifestyle uh, really hasn't changed much. Okay, I was retired uh, prior to the, the beginning of all of this. I spent most of last year taking care of uh, one of my sons uh, here in my home. He had ALS. Uh, when he passed last year, um, oh I, I, I even, well, he was a twin, and so uh, they both, one of them was in California. You know, I know this is not on, on topic, but the fact is, um, you know, it's been pretty quiet uh, since all that was done. You know, it's very busy taking care of someone uh, in that situation. But um, it's been very quiet. I've my interaction is is mostly, um, you know, uh, online uh, with my books, uh, various other things, which is not uncommon for me. I'm, I'm somewhat of a an introvert, but I very much enjoy some some pertinent topics that we shared uh, with the group, the people that you and I have been interacting with uh, since um, uh, we got into MMT. And so, but my life, as far as the coronavirus, it really hasn't changed other than the fact that I'm a lot more careful when I go out. And uh, here in northwest Arkansas, the um, epidemic hasn't really struck here yet, okay? Little Rock has quite a few cases, and um, we're not peaked. We still have time to do more preparation as a community, so... Yeah, I'm in, I'm in New Jersey. We're uh, number two. We're, we just exceeded 60,000 cases, uh, and we're only, you know, uh, it's all up on the northeast portion of the state. Uh, I'm near Philly, which is in more in the central lower portion of the state. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're above 60,000, and uh, New York, I believe, has just exceeded, I'm pretty sure they've exceeded 150,000 cases. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're in the thick it's of it pretty, now. And, and my, it's I, yeah, my uh, I have a neighbor two doors down. I live in townhomes, so our front doors are only like thirty feet away, and we're pretty yeah. sure that uh, one of the, their their adult son was taken away by ambulance five days ago, very likely with coronavirus. 
Um, so the very scary situation, you know. Uh, you know, I just noticed on, on the on the threads that uh, you know Louisiana has really high stats, and that South Dakota is is just starting to explode. And there are several places. And then I saw something, uh, Kim Iverson, and uh, very informative. She does, has a lot of good sources. And she talks about the, yeah, them showing that there may be a, three separate viruses at work here uh, in, around, around the world, in that, so that an immunity to one may not be in a, an immunity to another. It's scary. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I heard I just heard that it's a possibility that we may have social distancing as part of our lives for at least a year and a half, possibly up to two years now. Um, yeah. You said, you know, that's really awful having to put having to bury your child. That's that's. I'm really sorry to hear that. You said that they're twins. So I have uh, I had I had twin boys. My oldest my oldest were twin boys. We found out at the age of three. Uh, that their that their mother's side of the family has ALS. Uh, it, you know, she didn't know it when we when we were married. And then, about seven years later, we found out that they were the second highest at that time. This was the early nineties. Um, you know, they were born in seventy six. Uh, but in the early nineties, I guess we found that they were the second highest mortality rate for ALS in the nation. So we've known that we that we were going to have this. Her, their mother passed away. Uh, the son that lived with me took care of his mother for two years prior to her passing by, back in 2000. Uh, so we're, it's not that we're not unfamiliar or that we weren't as prepared as a family can be for uh, such a, a rigorous situation. But the fact is, you know, I lost two sons. One that was in a care center in San Diego and one that was here with me last year. So it was a pretty rigorous a year last year. The, the coronavirus has given me a lot of peace and quiet, and uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. So both of your twin boys had ALS? Yeah, it's a genetic. You know, in that family, it, it's a genetic. You know, most ALS is not genetic. And they, and much of it, they don't know the cause of it. Okay, but in this particular family, it was genetic, but it skipped a couple generations. And no one, you know, so no one in my son's uh, mother's generation really knew about it. They, folks didn't talk about it, you know. Then it, it wasn't a really close family anyway. But we didn't, we didn't really know. We would have rethought, um, you know, having children under those circumstances. Uh, the fact is, we found out when they were at the age of three that that she had, you know, her family had ALS, and so, and by the time they were, you know, twelve, fourteen years old, we were sure that it was going to end the way it, it ended. You know, uh, there was no, they were not going to, they were not going to reach the age of forty-five. Period. Yeah. Well, and so, the, and what is, so what's the story with your other son? Well, yeah, strangely enough, and this, and, and this is not a, this is not economics or MFT and a lot about my life story, but I, I don't mind telling you that um, 
you know, the, the, in that family, once once a, an individual starts with the symptoms, they they go through the process um, in about two years. In other words, from the time that first symptom shows up, they pass within two years. And this is wow. everybody everybody in the fam in the family was that way. Until uh, Jason, my, uh, the son that was in San Diego, um, he started symptoms back in 2000, and he didn't pass until last year, and that was the outlier. We don't, we have no idea why. Uh, we have uh, this uh, a researcher uh, up uh, in the Chicago area uh, with Northwestern, who's taking blood samples and. And, and doing research among all the the most um, devastating uh, cases of uh, ALS in, in the country, uh, but they, they, there's a lot of unanswered questions regarding ALS to this day, and uh, it's it's a pretty obscure disease process. So your so both of your sons are now passed. Is that right? That's correct. Right? Oh my um, gosh! Wow. Okay. That that is just. Absolutely shocking. They're both. Uh, I was born in '71, so they're both five years younger than me. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm. I'm obviously that's that's really awful to hear. I'm. I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, well, I know it's a, it's, it's harsh, but you know, one of the things that I did. Uh, I mean, I did. I was doing already. To me, something that was very important is is coping. Coping with. With the things that, that that life presents us with, and it's been a specific topic that I found to be uh, ha have importance. I'm not a behavioral scientist. I'm not a somebody that's an expert in any way in this. But I have some. I have talked to people who are, and and I find that that it's important for us. So I'm more important than we uh, as a society give. Um, attention to is being able to cope with the things that life presents us with. Uh, with this uh, knowledge about them with ALS, it's, it sort of kind of kicks me into high gear as a parent, teaching uh, my children to be better at accepting things that we cannot change. The twins, well, they taught me things about it before it was all said and done. They, uh, so it, it, the whole experience was a tragedy, and yet there's a whole lot more to the story than it just being a tragedy. Okay, my, I, I have the twins, and then I have uh, a stepdaughter and uh, another younger son. They, they've done well as well as a result of this focus in coping with the challenges that's. If they'd met as well, but uh, it, like I say, it's something that we we can prepare ourselves for if we give attention to it. So wow. Uh, okay. Well, you said you said you know this is not MMT and this is not economics, and and you know you're right, but I think it is important to tell the story of MMTers, not just talking about economics yeah. and MMT. So I like starting off you know, my conversations with people of just talking about themselves because that's important to get a context of, you know, the economics that we're going to be talking about. So I have, I have one more question for you related to this, and then, then we will go okay. to MMT. And that is, 
you sort of alluded to it, but can you talk about how you prepared your twins for knowing that they're going to have a short life and how you prepared your other children to deal with that reality as well? Um, well, that's a, that's really a much more expansive answer than the question might imply, but um, there are there are certain strategies that we we do mentally, and one thing that we we need to do first of all um, know how to bring ourselves into the present and and know that uh, the past and the future are abstractions. They they were, but the past was real at one time, and the future is you know yet to be written and. That sounds, you know, cliche and simplistic, but uh, with my children, uh, it's about basically teaching them to bring themselves into their surroundings, make an inventory of what they're feeling here and now, and and be able to stay there without allowing their attention to go outside of that. That's that's sort of the beginning, okay? Uh, It's also than being informed about um, the, the, the things that, that have happened and not allowing your imagination to run away. In other words, be fact-based, be science-based. Uh, what the, the life and death and illness are from the, the somewhat, uh, as, as well as a layperson can, um, from the point of view that, say, a doctor or a nurse would look at it. Now, I'm not talking about stoicism or um, denial. Uh, you know, I, I'm talking about simply being present to the facts and then being able to keep those, whatever language patterns, images of, of those things that we've learned uh, separate from where we are here and now. I didn't try to dictate to my children too specifically. I, I basically told them what needed to be done, gave them resources. Um, one of my biggest sources uh, yeah, were the uh, researchers of excellence in the uh, world of uh, neuro-linguistic programming. How do we create our models of the world? What what do our language patterns uh, look like, and how are they affecting us and our uh, and our emotional states? And uh, so there's a lot to there's a lot to it, and it it's something that happened over a long period of time. And some of my children took to it and and implemented uh, more than others. But um, when it all came down to it, yes, at the end. We all get scared of death, okay? There's no question. We all get, you know, it's it, it's intense, it's sad, it's it's harsh, it's rigorous. And life is rigorous. If we take it seriously, if we're not in denial of it. And when we do get to the topic of politics and, and uh, MMT and whatnot, I'll probably feed that into our conversation there because... Right now, there's a lot of denial and stoicism, and 
inappropriate strategies when it comes to, to coping with what we've got going in our society. Wow. Okay. And and actually, what you remind me of is uh, climate collapse. That that I want my boys who are ten and thirteen to be boys, just to be children, just to be able to you know have fun during their childhood. But I also don't want to pretend that they're going to be having a normal life if we're if we stay on the path that we're staying on. And I want to sort of you know somewhat prepare them for that reality, so that. You know, that's the same kind of the same kind of dilemma uh, in a sense. Exactly, and what I try to do early on for them is to teach them how to uh, have a have a mindset where they would prepare themselves for things that I couldn't foresee. Teach them how to be good students of life, of people, of circumstances. Um, you know, prognostication is, well, it's a crapshoot at best, but it's still, we, we have tools that we can use. One of the things is, you know, wonderful, what's wonderful about today's, you know, technology and, and our social interaction via the Internet, there's so much that, you know, we, we weren't getting when everything was newspapers and magazines. You know, uh, yeah, for those of us who would go to the library and, and come through the periodicals and look for, you know, what was making the pages, the front pages, um, you know, which were really um, much fewer uh, per capita uh, people than are online today. You know, as far as, as people that, that have a, a good overview of, um, you know, how, how they can expect things to play out, and whatnot, we even even those people who most hate to read are reading voraciously every day. It just happens to be on a thread on social media. And um, I'm personally very very grateful that the technology has has reached the point that it has, even though it needs a lot of work in terms of our learning curve and how we're using it. I don't know. I can't even imagine what this point in history would be like for if we were all, you know, waiting for someone to deliver our newspaper to find out what was happening. You know, we had to have a subscription to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, you know, back when I was young. You we're know. in the middle of a pandemic and we're doing a podcast interview. I mean, you know, that's that's different than, you know... What, like, well, that's, that's, a, that's different. Yeah. Very much so. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's, you know, wow. I obviously I had no idea. So, yeah, okay. So thank you for sharing that story. Um, why, don't, why don't we back up? And why don't you introduce yourself? And if you could tell us what your thinking was like before you discovered MMT. Okay. Uh, a couple of months ago, you did an interview where you talked with a person about um, a splinter in the back of your mind that's irritating. You know that something's wrong. And there was talk about a quote from um, the book Ishmael um, about, you know, not being able to solve the problem, you know, 
don't know it exists. And um, that was very apropos to, you know, who I am, who I, you know, I, the, my, the family I came from, there was something wrong. And I, I wasn't the kind of a person that would just take the, 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 the stock answer to any questions. Uh, I, I, uh, so I lived in a white nationalist environment in uh, North Houston, and uh, but grew up basically when the parents were away, sneaking into the room where the TV was, turning it on to an uh, educational channel and watching, because we weren't supposed to watch that channel. It had um, too many hippies and liberals, and so I, I watched, you know, Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson and, and all those people that, you know, the, commu- the community there around North Houston despised um, when nobody was home. And uh, learned to love Baldwin and, and uh, Al Sharpton and people that were speaking out to the, the issues of that day in, in the mid-60s. So that, that splinter has always been there for me, okay? Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? Or I disagreed you... with a great deal of it. And, uh, of course, a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape or lack of ability. And the problem is to become a man. Well, what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles, the very, the very real danger of death thrown up by the society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes it or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a, a black scholar than I have with a white man who's against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong, I might have gone to Timbuktu, I ended up in Paris, on the streets of Paris, with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself, you had to be able then to turn off all the antenna of which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit as a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, that doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. 
I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything Ooh, against black right. people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the, if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never I seen. Uh, then when I went, uh, graduated from high school in, in 72, uh, took some night classes at the community college there in Austin, I was going to do a, a business administration de degree, was started to check it out, and uh, started looking into economics. The, the advisor said, well, you don't want to take macro and microeconomics at the same time, and I said, I couldn't figure out. They couldn't really give me a reason why. They thought, well, maybe it's a little bit too much or something. But I decided that I wanted to do that, and so I went ahead and did it. And I so I started, you know, reading the book. Got the book as early as I could before classes started. Started reading the books. Uh, so by the time classes started, I had a ton of questions. Uh, some of them had to do like, well, where did the where's the statistics? that these theories come from, how these theories that you have about uh, the, the various rules and the way things operate, is, are, are you going to the, the government's um, vital statistics or the Census Bureau, or, or where are you compiling the data for, for, the, for these theories? So the, the professor basically said, well, there aren't any. There, there's no... There's no you know, I said, you mean it's not a science then, okay? And he didn't really answer, and he didn't really like the question. So I, I, I'm trying my heart out to understand um, this. And, and the fact is that the book for the macro and the micro were basically, they were, they were micro concepts. There, there were no macro concepts in either of the books. And they were basically, they struck me as religion. And so uh, I wound up dropping out of those. Of course, what I, it wasn't at all what I was looking for. Finally resigned myself to going, going a different route. My, my father was an orthopist, prophetist. You know what that is. Somebody that makes artificial lambs or braces back in the 70s. It was, it was like for Jerry's kids, you know, uh, Horace Gump, or, you know, he, he had been in that for, for years. And so I decided to go work for that instead of getting the, the degree. Because it, uh, I couldn't see making a living, uh, you know, my thought back at the time, and, you know, 19 and uh, whatnot. I, I'm, not, I'm not going into a religious profession. I want to do something where I where I have some significance to uh, individuals' lives. And so working for Dad had its downside, but he was very good at what he did, and so I thought I'd give it a try. And I wound up retiring 45 years in the orthotic and prosthetic industry. But I've always been a reader of politics, this and that. So we fast forward to... Um, mid-1980s, and um, 
here in, in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, being, uh, one of a group of, uh, you know, old hippies, basically, there was a, a, a couple of people who came from, uh, over in New York State trying to raise money for an organization known as Puente de Paz, the Bridge of Peace. And this was during Nicaragua. And Bernie was basically uh, trying to get the municipalities or to get the people of, of, of the larger cities to petition their, their municipalities and their states and their governors to write Reagan and ask them to change their, their foreign policy in relation to Nicaragua. And uh, these folks that, that came in and invited a bunch of people together as a fundraiser trying to get money for uh, water systems and tractors for Nicaraguans that had been displaced by the Russians into the jungles. And they were trying to clear out spaces in the jungle and, and farm little communities, but they needed to, but to build little water systems uh, to, for their crops, and they needed some tractors. Uh, these folks that, like I say, came from New York, they brought a, a little VHS video with them. Uh, Bernie Sanders sitting at a kitchen table there in uh, Burlington uh, talking about Nicaragua, talking about getting people to uh, write their, their mayors and, uh, and, and, do, and get a campaign started to uh, basically change our foreign policy. But I think many Americans are not aware of the horrendous conditions existing all around the third world. You see the pictures on television about Ethiopia, all right? Well, that's obviously not happening in Nicaragua. But all over Latin America and Central America, you do have hunger, you have malnutrition, you have disease, very, very serious problems. The third world today is facing the most serious crisis it's faced since the Depression, if not ever. And those problems exist in Nicaragua. So I think in terms of health care, in terms of education, in terms of land reform, giving for the first time in their lives real land to farmers so that they can have something that they grow, nobody denies that they are making a significant progress in those areas. And I think people understand that, and people of Nicaragua, the poor people, respect that. Rich people, needless to say, who used to have the good life there, are not terribly happy. Of course, it, it, was, it was interesting because the people that, that came to raise this, this money, they were afraid. They were sort of traveling under the radar, uh, off the grid, if you will. They were afraid that, yeah, this is in, in the mid-'80s, that uh, the CIA or somebody would, would have tagged them and be, you know, a threat to them. But uh, I knew that most people didn't really want to talk about Sanders, uh, his politics or anything back then. But I've been a fan of his even before I knew his name back in the 60s, like I said, when I was watching the educational channel and saw him uh, being dragged off from the protest. They didn't, the news back then in the 60s, they didn't ever mention his name. We didn't know that that young man's name was Bernie Sanders. And um, being, being from Houston and him being from Chicago and from Chicago, 
I assumed he didn't survive the night in jail. I mean, as a kid, I was just, what, 10, 10 years old, 19 years old, and, and I understood the cultures. So I assumed that that, that young man that, that had trained himself to that black woman, I, I, I didn't figure he made it. And I didn't hear anything about it until he ran for uh, mayor of Burlington. Uh, then I realized when somebody showed up a, a, a picture in that news of, of him that I had seen on TV back when I was a ch- kid. Wow. Uh, and, and I said, oh, God, he's still, I was, I can't even tell you how happy I was, Jeff, wow. that, 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 that he was still alive and that he was running for mayor of Burlington. And, and so that's how long I've been a, a fan of Sanders. Now, you have to understand, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, an FDR Democrat. I'm far to the left socialist. I'm, I'm a, and have been for a long time. I mean, like you said, he's, he had done a, a lot of very lonely campaigns. You know, I mean, people weren't listening to him. So I understand why he would be reluctant. I have a couple questions. So yeah. you, you, you said you lived in a white nationalist neighborhood in, in Houston, Texas. So, and, but then you, then you like, you, you started watching, I don't know. I, I forget exactly. Uh, well, I, there were, there were two, there were two news, news programs uh, yeah, on, on the education. One out of New York and one out of UCLA. Okay. Uh, that were uh, liberal news programs and whatnot. And they would have, you know, world news and whatnot. They would, they would talk about the, uh, the, the Martin Luther King's uh, demonstrations. And, and as, as a 9, 10-year-old, we were forbidden to watch that stuff. But it seems, I, I, my impression is that you have always been this way and that these outlets were finally your way of fulfilling what you had always felt. Like, I, I, don't, think, I don't think what you're saying is that you actually, you know, you had white nationalists in you because that's with the society you lived in. I think it's it, uh, what I'm getting, what I believe what was, you're saying uh, is that you're uh, always sort of progressive in a way and that you finally found an outlet when you discovered these more liberal news outlets and so on. It's, 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 it's a strange dichotomy, Jeff, in that, you know, uh, uh, people in these cultures, they tell their children to be fair minded and to be, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, I mean, some of them, I, I guess, you know, they not like they totally reject all fairness. They're just selective. And, and I'm also, I have a history of, of, of I'm a 12 stepper. Okay. Not for alcoholism, but for rage. Uh, my family has a history of uh, when things get become untenable uh, to kind of go off the deep end of anger. When I realized that this is not who I am and that I was starting to, to demonstrate patterns of behavior that were coming from the, the adults in my childhood, I, I, you know, I, I made up my mind I was going to go into it, find, find some help. And so I had to cope with that. That was part of the, the coping, uh, that t- talked about. And, but those tools, those resources that, that kind of gave me a depth of understanding of how the families can what they specifically do to children as I watch some children placate their families by adopting the bigotry of the culture 
they're, they're taking care of their own safety. If they don't comply, they're at risk. For me, I learned other ways. I learned that just keeping my mouth shut, being very, very careful. I would been, I'd been beat down as a child. You know, didn't leave the house without being beside an adult. Okay, because those a few years older than me and whatnot had permission to basically teach me how to get in line. Hmm. The, the, adult, the adults did, did, didn't beat me down. They just gave permission to those bigger and older than me to gang up on me, to beat me in because I wasn't. They knew that I wasn't adopting the beliefs of the culture. That's actually and this happens. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I, I know that I'm not the only person that goes to it. Just nobody talks about it. It's, it's no different than Bernie Bros, fake news, uh, uh, all, all, these, all these racial terms. These are all signals from powerful people, the elite, to those who now, have some yeah, privilege it, and want to keep their mm -hmm. privilege to, to discriminate against those who try and question authority. Yes. And, and, what the, and, and this is another reason why I'm thankful for the Internet, is that we can put these things on the table without people getting thumped in and left in a, a ditch, literally. You know, be, being ganged up on and left in a ditch because they had a different view. Right. But it happens. It has, it has happened to me, and it happens. Okay? And it still happens today. And not just black people are not safe. And not just Hispanic people, Latinx people are not safe. There is nothing that angers these bigots more than to have one of their own basically betray the culture. Sure. They are, they are, they are actually more at risk because people, for the most part, they, I mean, most people are conflict averse, but they just want to believe what they want to believe. I'm also a fan. One of the things you would see me post, and you probably you may have seen me post, is Robert uh, Sapolsky. He's an anthropologist who studies baboons, and he talks about the the effects of hierarchy in societies. And I and I and I post uh, a couple of his YouTube things about these baboons that he re was researching 25 years ago. And how they would beat up on each other, you know, the big one would beat up on the little one, take away his banana and whatever. And then something happened in one of these communities, and they decided to raid a garbage dump behind one of the uh, hunting lodges, and um, they got um, typhoid or something, and all the alphas, male and female alphas, died. Because they were the first one to the pile and drove off all the other ones until they got what they wanted. Mm. And then, as a result, this society, the, the oldest, the strongest, the ones that survived, were mostly female and, and, and mostly uh, more socially uh, inclined. They reestablished the community but they didn't tolerate any more of that alpha bully behavior. Hmm. And when an occasional male would come from another tribe that had been driven out uh, seeking, you know, female attention, 
the females of this particular tribe would basically kind of gather around them and say, you, you don't do that bully stuff here. You, you're welcome to stay, but, you know, we don't do that here. And Robert, you know, researched this and has written books and, and done talks about how uh, a consensus-based society is so different than a hierarchy-based society. Okay, great question. One of the, like, great urban myths, if you were stuck in certain types of classes in college back when, is that we share, like, 98.9% of our DNA with chimps. And that was one of those, like, ridiculous soundbite things like, Yes, Einstein failed math when he was a kid, and there's like alligators in the sewer system in Manhattan, and, and we share 98% of our DNA with chimps. And so they sequenced the human genome now about a decade ago, and about five years ago, the chimp genome was sequenced, and it was possible to you know, finally sit with these two mile-long printouts and see what was in common. And, what. and it turns out that we share like 98.9% of our DNA with chimps. It was absolutely true. And it was not based on ridiculous guesses in the 1980s when that soundbite first came out. It was based on very solid science, that some that was done at Berkeley. Then the sequence comes out, and yes, indeed, there is that much overlap. So of course, the question then becomes, where's the differences? What are the genetics of what distinguishes us from chimps? So people have studied this. Right off the bat, about half the differences in gene expression have to do with genes coding for olfactory receptors. Chimps have a better sense of smell than we do. All sorts of genes they have for olfactory receptors we've inactivated into what are called pseudogenes. What that tells us is if, like, you wipe out half of a chimp's sense of smell genetically, you're halfway there to making a human. Okay. <laughs> This is not very impressive. Okay, so what other genes have been identified? Some having to do with like the size of the pelvic arch. We walk upright, they don't as often. Some of it turns out have to do with body hair. They're covered with fur and you know, it's only some humans that have like, you know, the guys with hair on their shoulders that are all unsettling. And you know, there's a genetics, there's some genetics about immune recognition. You know, we keel over with certain diseases that chimps don't. We can survive tuberculosis for years. Chimps don't. They can handle simian AIDS in ways that we can't the human version. So it's differences immune function, some aspects of reproductive isolation, so you're unlikely to get chimp-human hybrids. All That accounts for almost all the genetic differences. Where are the genes that are relevant to the brain? And it turns out there's hardly any. And the few that have been identified make perfect sense because these are not genes that make it possible for us to have metaphor or genes that, because going back to that first slide, we've got the same nervous system basically that chimps do. There's only one difference, which is we've got like three times as many neurons. And what the genetic differences are, are genes having to do with the number of rounds of cell division during fetal brain development. Essentially what that says is take a chimp brain fetally and let it go two or three more rounds of division and you get a human brain instead and out come symphonies and ideology and hopscotch and everything else there. What that tells you is with enough quantity, you invent quality. Okay, and, and that, that uh, how a hierarchy-based society basically implies that bully behavior is an inherent aspect of it. 
But it's my contention because we 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 didn't we or we 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 did allow the alpha, both male and female, the bullies, to uh, remain and stay a part of our societies. When in most of our societies was consensus based, especially as we started to to specialize, basket weaving, uh, making of clothing, you know, people doing things that were not directly related to hunting, hunting and gathering, they still needed to eat. So they basically used their time and then traded, you know, their skills for food. As the societies saw the importance of that, some of them, not all of them, became more consensus-based. But because humans are so uh, risk-averse and conflict-averse, they didn't basically set um, a boundary, a a criteria that says alpha bully behavior won't be tolerated. We're not going to, you know, you're not going to be a part of our society. And even when they did, um, those that were bullies, uh, you know, alpha bullies, they would form their own societies and became the raiders that 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 raided the, the farming communities. We didn't think that true as a species very well. And it's, so very, this, reminis- it's very reminiscent of, of what we're going through right now. Is that you know, this, 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 in neoliberalism and individualism? It's like. You know the the the, it's the inequality is is sure if you have if you have the resources and the money then of course you can be as individual as you like because you're you're you have endless resources available to you and they're crushing you know people who stand up to them and don't want that inequality in the Bernie campaign and all of that but the reality is is that individualism is not going to save us from our immense you know, catastrophic problems that we are facing. The only thing that will save us is to be a collective and care for each other. Um, yeah. You're right. You're right, Jeff. We are. But after after a lifetime, you know, I'm 66 now, and a lifetime of, of looking at this, basically my emphasis is to try to find what's the bottom line here. You know, maybe we won't go on a bumper sticker, okay? But there is, there is a bottom line to it all. Because um, I've watched human beings give freely without any question as to what's in it for me. Many, many times. Okay? And I've watched others just, it's never about anything but what's in it for me a small fraction of the number of people who would love to be in an environment where they felt like that they had enough abundance that they could spend more of their time giving to others than they do taking care of themselves. Because there, that is an environment of peace and happiness and love and, and all the things we cherish. Most people, that, that's what they want. The thing of it is, where did we go wrong? 
And the, the if we go back to that, basically knowing ourselves as Aristotle advised us to do, we didn't say just set a boundary and say you have the freedom to do whatever, as long as it will not do harm to others for profit, hierarchy, social capital, or just entertainment. Okay. You do not initiate a behavior that is sociopathic. If you do, we're done with you as a society. You're, you know, you're, you're out of here. You, know, you, 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 first you lose adult status and you get a warning with, you know, you'll, you'll be ostracized from our community. And we didn't do that. And the thing of it is, all of the problems that we, that, that, that we face today, stem from that choice, that difference, not in framing it uh, as uh, my individuality as, as I am as the collective, but am I uh, a healthy and holistic individual or am I a sociopath? And if, I'm, if I reserve the right to make a choice and a decision in my individuality to behave in a sociopathic way, then I am chosen to be a sociopath. And if, but if I constrain myself, I, I have enough of my own individual rights and freedoms to say, no, I'm choosing to refrain from that choice to be a sociopath. Then I can claim adulthood. I can, de- to be a functional part of a society. That was the error. And that's how far we have to go back. And that's how we have to reframe our language patterns. Because as we use these other words, you know, these other generalities, these um, uh, nominalizations, um, for those who don't, aren't familiar with that term, where we take a, a, an action and give it the name of a noun, you know, like, like socialism, socialism is to be social, we turn it into a noun as, a, as an idea instead of a behavioral concrete set of actions, we, we use the word socialism and we turn it into an idea. Okay, but what does that mean? We talk about socialism. We, what we don't talk about is sociopathy versus healthy and holistic. And that's where we need to begin. Okay. You're talking about redefining because, the terms adult and society and in MMT what work and productivity is. It's redefining our language. Back in the 70s, there was a, a reporter in, in, uh, out of New York, and I don't remember whether it was the Times or one of them, and... Um, he wanted, you know, he want, he was wanting to do some, you know, um, some uh, muckraking type of stuff, and uh, apparently the boss really wanted him to settle down. And somebody had was was doing some research on uh, on religion on the on the various fringe religions around the world, and they decided to send him to Cambodia. He didn't really want to go. 
and the logistics of getting there. This was, you know, a couple of years after the Vietnam War. They were they were trying to to sort of renormalize political um, relationships with some of the other governments on there. Uh, but um, they had heard of a small community in the jungle in the southwest uh, corner of Cambodia near Vietnam. Well, maybe it was, I'm sorry, it may have been Laos. Uh, this community where, um, of a, a unique religion. And uh, so they sent this reporter there, and it took him longer to get over there and get the visas and the paperwork. And, and then he had to find a guide and travel for three days, you know, packing you know, stuff up to survive in a walk, a three-day walk through the jungle and back. And he gets within oh, six or seven miles of the community, and they word had been sent ahead uh, in the week ahead that he was coming, and they and they sent someone out, but there's no top, there's no phones and service or anything out there. Everybody everybody just you know they just have runners that, that run messages back and forth. Uh, they get uh, within six or seven miles of the community. And they meet the person that was supposed to come out and meet them, uh, him and his interpreter. And they um, they come out and they tell the interpreter that the religious leader that he was coming to interview was not there. He was doing a wedding some 30 miles north of there. And they, they had no way to let him know in advance that he wasn't going to be there to interview him. And the reporter started going into a rage. And the members of the community that were there just turned and was interacting with the interpreter, and it was as if the reporter wasn't even there from that moment on. As soon as he started ranting, he didn't exist for those people. And so he asked the interpreter what just happened. And the interpreter explained that says in this community that children are raised to basically what we can now call have emotional intelligence. In other words, you have control over your feelings and you manage them. And through 20 or more years of practicing how to deal with a variety of different circumstances, if you have demonstrated that you can manage your feelings throughout these, even the most rigorous circumstances, you'll be honored with adult status in the community and can make decisions for the community as an adult. But the moment that you break the contract with the community, in other words, you declare yourself no longer an adult, the adults don't act, interact with you as an adult any longer, period. You start from the beginning. It may take another 20 or plus years, if ever, for you to, to, to regain that adult status. You have to reprove yourself. Now, that reporter came back and wrote a story about that, about a society that still existed in the mid-70s that basically set emotional intelligence at, at a high enough standard 
that no one was honored with adult status unless they proved they were an adult. So it's not like humans can't do it. But we've just chosen in a rugged individual way not to. Wow. Um, okay. Well, so let's see. Let's let's now let's start to bring MMT into this. So, you said before that you took some courses in macro and micro, and the macro came across to you as if it was not macro; that it just felt like more micro to you. So, so you, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder. Number one, what background did you have to be able to even determine that if you had no macro background? And can you use that as a as a as a jumping off point to how you discovered MMT itself, and how that fits into your you know pretty philosophical point of view? You know, I'm sure that that fits a role of like you know you saw your more liberal news, which was you know an outlet for you, and I'm sure that MMT fits that role in some way. So please. Okay. Okay. First of all, both the, the the information from both classes made one thing very clear, right? In the very first uh, paragraphs, that the beginning of all economics is the sale. Now, they didn't say which specific sale, but the sale is the beginning of all economics. And this was something that was emphasized both in the macro class and the micro class. And... The, the, so, although I didn't have any idea, I mean, we, we, we were told in, in, in elementary school that the dollar is an IOU issued by the federal government. But there wasn't a lot of specifics tied to that, okay? It was that, but that was a given. So, um, when I asked, you know, how did they, how did they get the money? It was, well, it was issued by the federal government. And I said, well, that's not my question is, how do you make a, the, the first sale? And I could say, being my dad was a business owner, okay, okay, I was the oldest kind of, of this business owner. I was not, you know, there's, there's two types of sons of business owners. One that sits in, in the office and, and, and keeps uh, the boss uh, validated, and the other is uh, cheap labor. Okay, I was the latter. <laughs> okay, some of, there, there, is, there is some of each in in, in some families, but uh, the, the fact is, so what I did learn. From the-